Okay, so over the last couple of weeks, we've been exploring the three factors of the path that are to do with sila, with our ethical behavior, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And today, I'd like to move on to the last three factors of the path, which are traditionally grouped as the meditative factors, the samadhi factors of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, and we'll be focusing mostly on right effort. And even though right effort is classified as one of the meditative factors, it also comes into play pretty much with every factor of the path. So perhaps you remember a few weeks ago I quoted a part of a sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, Majjhima Nikaya 17, which showed the interrelationship between right effort, right mindfulness, and right view. So I'd like to go back to that sutta and just read um, excerpts from it. It says, One strives to abandon wrong view, and one enters into right view. This is one's right effort. One strives to abandon wrong resolve or wrong thought and to enter into right resolve, right thought. This is one's right effort. One strives to abandon wrong speech and to enter into right speech. This is one's right effort. One strives to abandon wrong action and to enter into right action. This is one's right effort. One strives to abandon wrong livelihood and to enter into right livelihood. This is one's right effort. So on one level, that's quite a simple point, that we need right effort with all of these factors in order to make anything happen. And I think it's worth highlighting this relationship between sila, ethical conduct, and samadhi, meditation, Because I think in the West, we've tended to put so much emphasis on meditation and not so much on the conditions that support it. So I think, you can um, correct me if I'm wrong, most of us come to meditation with some understanding or hope that if I meditate, that's going to affect my life out here. So perhaps stress reduction, for example, or seeing more clearly or being less reactive or whatever it's going to be. What I do on the cushion is going to affect my daily life. What we don't pay so much attention to is how what we do in our daily life affects our meditation. And yet that is really foundational because we don't meditate in a vacuum. You know, what we think and do and say throughout the day, that has a huge impact. So we really need to be paying attention to these ethical factors as a support for our meditation. And there's a story I appreciate in relation to this that Joseph tells about his teacher, Munindraji, where uh, after IMS, the big meditation center in the U.S., had been going for a while, Joseph invited Munindraji to come and visit and to see the the Westerners meditating. And I think it may have been during a three-month retreat, something like that. And Munindra was around for a while, and Joseph asked him, well, what do you think? And he... Munindraji said something like, well, he was impressed by how diligent these Westerners were in meditating, meditating, meditating. But he said, 
It reminded me, him of people in a rowing boat, rowing furiously, but with their boat still tied to the dock. And by that he meant they're doing the meditation, but they're not paying attention to their sila. And so they're not actually going to be able to make a lot of progress. All of that effort, in a way, is not being applied skillfully. So this is how Gil Fransdell describes the relationship between sila and the samadhi factors. He says, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration are the factors of the path that address our inner activities, what we do with our minds and hearts. This focus is distinct from the emphasis on verbal and physical actions in the three preceding factors of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Attention to and care with our outward actions prepares us to do the same for our inner mental actions. And as with other factors on the path, what guides this care is the intention to avoid causing harm and to, get, and to engage in what is beneficial for ourselves and others. So coming back to this factor of right effort, before we go too much further, just would like to invite a moment to pause and notice for you when you hear this phrase, right effort, if there's any particular reaction or response in the body and the heart and the mind. What images or associations or connotations does the phrase right effort have for you? Just to notice. Because for some people there can be a very common sense of oh, effort, oh, effort, effort, effort. I'm not trying hard enough. I'm supposed to do more. It's just too much. And I feel exhausted even thinking about effort. Whereas for other people, it might be the opposite. Like, ah, finally we get to the real stuff. Enough of all this fluffy kindness and compassion. Now I'm going to make heroic effort, striving on with mindfulness. So most of us have a tendency to um, fall more to one's towards one side of effort than the other. And yet throughout the teachings that I've been emphasizing, the Buddha really emphasized the middle way. So if you remember back to week one, I talked about his life experience, how he started with indulging in sense pleasures, hedonism, rejecting that, going to the opposite extreme of extreme austerity, self-mortification, and then realizing that wasn't helpful coming back to the middle way and giving his first teaching, defining the middle way as the Eightfold Path. And so this middle way is really crucial. It's a really crucial skill of the practice to keep finding balance. And yet for so many of us, this middle way can be quite elusive. And I know for myself that early on in my practice, when I heard this phrase, right effort, I'd immediately think blood, sweat, and tears. Because to me, effort had this connotation of gritted teeth kind of determination. And it took me a long time to realize I was fixating on the effort part of the phrase, but not paying enough attention to the right 
part of the phrase, what is right effort? So as I said, I think back in week one, we often have a very dualistic approach to effort. It's all or nothing. You know, 110% effort, which isn't sustainable. We get exhausted. We slide into apathy. We regroup. Then we try again, way too much effort, and we swing between apathy and zeal. And it's so common that I think of this, as I said in week one, as the superhero to slug syndrome, that we go from one extreme to the other. And often what's driving this is a fear that unless we try far too hard, we're going to backslide and make no progress. But ironically, that's often what happens. Because when we try too hard, it's not sustainable. We burn out and then we don't make progress. So trying to find a more sustainable effort is really what the big picture of right effort is all about. So this, uh, back in the Buddha's time, there's quite a famous interchange he had with a monk who'd been making too much effort and was getting very caught up in striving and not actually making any progress. So in frustration, he went to the Buddha for advice. This monk had been a lute player before he became a monk. And the Buddha is said to have asked him, when you were a lute player and you wanted to make a pleasant sound, did you um, tune the strings of your lute too tightly? And of course, the answer is no. And the Buddha said, well, then did you tune them too loosely? And again, it's obvious the answer is no. So the Buddha said in the same way, we need to tune the strings not too tight, not too loose. I like that analogy because it really highlights the importance of listening. And just as with a lute, it's not like we tune our instrument once and then stick it in the corner and that's it, we're done. Causes and conditions are constantly changing, so we have to keep listening. And what's right effort right here, right now, might be very different in the middle of a three-month retreat or in daily life if we're sick or injured. So we have to keep assessing our inner states, our outer conditions, and adjusting the effort to suit. So this is a general um, definition of right effort, just knowing what's the appropriate amount of energy to put into what I'm doing right now. In the context of the Noble Eightfold Path, this right effort is specifically looking also at our mental states, at our mental qualities, in terms of knowing whether they're skillful or unskillful, and then taking the appropriate effort in relation to them. So there's a very technical, somewhat technical definition of right effort where the Buddha defines what he means in this context. I'd like to read it to you. The language is a little bit convoluted, but I'll summarize it so you get a sense of what it's saying. So when the Buddha is asked to define right effort, he says, here a person rouses his or her will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his or her mind, and strives to restrain the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mental states. So that's the first great effort 
is to prevent unskillful mental qualities from coming up in the first place. So Gil Fransdil calls this the effort of preventing. However, the Buddha was a realist, I think. So when he, he knew that even with this effort, there'll be times when preventing doesn't work, we find that unwholesome states have arisen. So this leads to the second effort. Here, a person rouses his or her will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his or her mind, and strives to abandon unwholesome mental states that have arisen. So this is a second effort when unskillful mental states have come up to abandon them, to release them, to let them go. So Gil Fransel calls this the stage of releasing, the effort to release. So the first two are the effort in relation to unskillful states. The last two are what to do in relation to skillful states. So the third one, here, a person rouses his or her will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his or her mind, and strives to develop unarisen, wholesome mental states. So in this one, we're trying to make the effort to help skillful states to come up if they aren't already present. And then the last one, here, a person rouses his or her will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his or her mind, and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. So this fourth great effort is to maintain and to enhance and to perfect the skillful states that have arisen. So Gil Fransdell talks about this as the fourth stage of maintaining. So he says in relation to all these, right effort involves four different ways we can apply ourselves. When it comes to our inner thoughts, feelings and states, we can one, prevent, two, overcome, three, arouse, or four, maintain these inner experiences. In the practice of right effort, we utilize these four efforts to safeguard and develop the quality of our mind and heart. The quality of our inner life is our most important asset, and it deserves our utmost care. When we see clearly that unskillful mental states decrease the quality of our inner life, it is natural to want to either prevent these states from occurring or if they're already there, to find a way to derail them. And when we understand that there are things we can do to increase the quality of our inner life, it's healthy and makes sense to do so. In this way, the quality of our inner life can be improved. So just to go into these four efforts in a little more detail, the first one, the effort of preventing one way we can do this is traditionally known as guarding the sense doors. So if you remember, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, we did the practice together in dyads of simply naming our sense contacts out loud. Do you remember that? 
just naming seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, physical sensations. And then the sixth sense door is the mind. So usually when we have contact at any of these sense doors, there's a more or less automatic response of liking, not liking, not knowing, wanting, not wanting, and so on. But when we practice with bare awareness, we're restraining that reactivity and just staying with, oh, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, emotion, and so on. Sometimes in certain situations where we have learned that we often get pulled off balance in some way, we might need to go a step further and actively change our behavior in some way. So, for example, just say I had a little bit of an addiction to dark chocolate cherry liqueurs and a new Belgian chocolatier shop opened on my way to work Perhaps, to begin with, it might be skillful to choose a different way to get to work rather than walking past the stimulation every day. But after some time of guarding the sense doors, I might discover that it doesn't matter anymore. I've weakened that habit, and then I am able to walk past the shop, see the display, or smell the smell, and just go, yeah, okay. So this is an an, an example of just guarding the sense doors, preventing unskillful states from arising. And then, as I said, the Buddha recognized that even in spite of this, at times we find ourselves caught in unskillful states. And in the context of meditation practice particularly, which is what this aspect of right effort is referring to, what we're on the lookout here is the presence of the five hindrances. Are all of you familiar with this outline of the five hindrances? Anybody never heard of it? Great. So you all know that these five hindrances are particularly particular mind states that have a very unhelpful impact on our ability to see clearly and our ability to cultivate insight. So I'll just run through them fairly quickly. The first one is um, desire for sense pleasure. So any form of greed, of wanting that agitates the mind. I can't wait for this to be over so I can go and have my coffee later. You know, there's that pulling the attention away from seeing clearly. The uh, second one is aversion or ill will, the opposite energy of not wanting, of pulling away, of getting caught in irritation, frustration, aversion, judgment, self-judgment, anger, blame, etc. It also includes fear states, so fear and anxiety and so on. Anything, again, that just agitates the mind gets in the way of concentration and insight. The third one, sloth and torpor, these are old-fashioned English words for dullness of body and kind of Lethargy in the mind, um, cloudiness in the mind, low en- different forms of low energy. So we know the animal, the sloth, that moves incredibly slowly, hangs out in trees. And a friend of mine has actually spent time with sloths in South America, and he said they're incredibly slow moving, and that 
Some of them actually have green algae in their fur because they move so slowly. So closer to home, I also think of this as like koala mind because, you know, koalas sit in a tree. It's kind of like... And you get the sense that they have just enough energy to not fall out of the tree. But that's really about it. So sloth and torpor is that kind of dull, sinking mind. And then the fourth hindrance, restlessness and worry, is the opposite imbalance of energy. It's too much energy. So physically, when we just feel like we're going to jump out of our skin and we can't stop shifting our posture, and the more we shift, the more we need to shift that kind of physical agitation. And then in the mind, restlessness, remorse, worry, anxiety, the mind that just keeps spinning stories, trying to think itself out of problems, which just prolongs the agitation. And then the last one, skeptical doubt. So doubt about our own capacities to follow the teachings, doubt about the teachers. Who are these people anyway? What do they know? Doubt about the teachings. Oh, it's so ancient. You know, how can this be relevant to today? Wouldn't I be better off just having a nice holiday instead of sweating it out here? You know, all these different ways that we get seduced into sort of undermining our own practice. Or it can show up as doubt about what to actually do. Should I do mindfulness? Should I do concentration? Should I go for jhanas? Should I do metta? Am I practicing deeply enough? And so on. So just to make the distinction between doubt and investigation, because investigation is a skillful form of questioning that is onward leading. It leads us to more clarity. Whereas doubt is just a kind of as one friend calls it, paralysis by analysis. We just keep spinning round and round in circles and don't come to any useful movement forward. So these classically are the five hindrances, and unfortunately I don't have time in this context to go into them in more detail, but just to be able to name them and to recognize them is one very powerful antidote So being able to say, oh, this is just restlessness and worry. Oh, this is doubt. It's just doubt. Sometimes just that can help uh, it to release. One other point about them, very important, to try not to take them personally. You know, we hear words like hindrances and think, oh, they're a reflection of the state of my practice by extension, a reflection of who I am as a meditator or even who I am as a human being. So I like to share uh, how one English Dharma teacher, Rob Berbea, framed the hindrances where he refers to them as manifestations of our humanity. Manifestations of our humanity. So I think you know this shifts our understanding of them rather than thinking of those problems of of who I am. It's just, okay, these are manifestations of our humanity. It's natural and normal. All of us have them. How do I help them to release? And this non-identification and sense of humor in relation to them is one powerful way of not prolonging them, holding on to them. So coming back now to these four great efforts... The third one, now we shift to skillful states. 
And again, in the context of meditation, this refers to the cultivating of the seven factors of awakening. So I'm aware that there are lists within lists within lists. Just uh, I'll give you the lists on our resource sheet for this week. So don't feel like you have to try and map them all out now. But for those of you might know that in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, we have the list of the five hindrances, which I just referred to, and also the seven factors of awakening. And Bhikkhu Analio has made the point that all of the techniques within the four foundations of mindfulness, all of our mindfulness practice, ultimately is aimed at cultivating, strengthening, and developing and balancing these seven factors of awakening. Because when these seven factors of awakening are equally strong and equally well balanced, that is the optimum condition for the deepest and most transformative insights to arise. So these seven factors, when you hear them, we will recognize probably all of them. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So these are skillful states that in this third effort, we make the effort to notice if they're present, to notice if they're absent, to try and to develop them, to have them come into play, mostly by releasing the hindrances. Because by definition, when the hindrances are present, there's no room for the seven factors of awakening. But the opposite is also true. When the seven factors of awakening come into play, there's no room for the hindrances. So actively releasing the hindrances and cultivating and strengthening the awakening factors is, the, um, is where the development of the practice is leading. So once we recognize that these factors are present, the instructions again are to maintain them, to not let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development, again, so that the deepest insights can arise. And I think it's worth making the point again that You know, these days as mindfulness becomes more and more mainstream, more and more widespread, it's often taught in terms of it's just about being with your experience. Just be with it. Just be with it. Don't try to change it. Just know what your experience is. That's all. Don't impact it or manipulate it in any way. And it's true that this is the approach that's given in the first three foundations of mindfulness, where we're just aware of what's happening in the body. We're aware of feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And we're aware of mind states. Is there greed? Is there not? Is there hatred? Is there not? Is there ignorance? Is there not? With those three foundations, we're simply knowing what's present. When we come to the fourth foundation, where we have these hindrances and the awakening factors, the emphasis changes to getting involved. It's no longer just passively knowing, but if there is a hindrance present, release it, abandon it, relinquish it, let it go. If the awakening factors are coming into play, recognize them, strengthen them, perfect them by development. 
So there's a much more engaged uh, uh, relationship to our experience here. And one last point that, you know, we can hear again about effort, 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 and feel daunted, like this is going to take, you know, heroic effort for the rest of my life to make any kind of progress. But as the practice develops more and more, we start to um, experience these kind of chain reactions that are woven throughout the teachings, where if we can make the effort to launch the first few uh, qualities of heart and mind, they really start to take on their own momentum. And then we can let go a little and find ourselves caught in these kind of thermal updrafts or chain reactions of skillful states. So after some time, the amount of effort that's required actually becomes less. It becomes more refined. So I'd like to return briefly to a sutta that I gave in week two that, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, Dveda Vitaka Sutta, the two kinds of thought. If you remember back then, it's the one where the Buddha is talking about before his enlightenment, he started paying attention to his thoughts and he recognized certain types of thoughts lead to harm for himself and for others. So he realized he needed to abandon them. He saw other types of thoughts led to welfare, to benefit for himself and for others. So he recognized these are the types of thoughts that I need to strengthen. And he went on to say, bhikkhus, practitioners, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. Not long... After, in that same sutta, he uses an analogy that I find quite interesting, the analogy of the cow herder. I don't know if you read that back in week two, but I'd like to just share it again now. So using the analogy of um, somebody who's looking after cows, he says, just as in the last month of the rains, in the autumn season when the crops are ripening, a cow herd would look after his cows. He would tap and poke and check and curb them with a stick on this side and that. Why is that? Because he sees flogging or imprisonment or a fine or public censure arising from that if he were to let his cows wander into the crops. In the same way, I foresaw in unskillful qualities drawbacks, degradation and defilement and I thought, foresaw in skillful qualities rewards related to renunciation and promoting cleansing. And then he goes on to say, just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been gathered into the village, a cowherd would look after his cows. While resting under the shade of a tree or out in the open, he simply keeps himself mindful of, quote, those cows. In the same way, I simply kept myself mindful of, quote, those mental qualities. So this is pointing to, I think, the ease that comes that when we've managed to release the more grosser, harmful, unskillful qualities, and there's uh, some degree of ease and skillfulness in the mind, we can relax a little. We can settle back into the shade of a tree and just notice those cows. 
those cows, those mental qualities. We don't have to be micromanaging or um, making as much effort as, as previously. So this is where all this effort is leading. We start with perhaps more intense effort, but then over time as the practice becomes more refined, similarly the amount of effort required also becomes more refined and the default setting of the mind, the inclination of the mind, is more naturally towards the skillful qualities. So speaking of skillful qualities, thank you all for staying awake. That was very impressive, and I hope it didn't take too much heroic effort, but uh, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.